are continuing in a sermon series that we are calling Psalms of the Summer, the Soundtracks of Life. And uh, if you have our church app, or I think they might be in the back, we have some handouts that will help you to understand the book of Psalms. The Psalms are really a collection of poetry and songs that are written to God, kind of like old school hymn books or today your modern uh, Spotify playlist for God. And so there are opportunities to learn how people have had deep real relationships with God and also can help us in our relationships with God. As we see the struggle, we see the highs, the low, the triumphs, the victories and the losses and we see how they continue to engage in their faith in our heavenly being. And so we have already covered Psalm 1, uh, we have covered Psalm 18, and we have covered Psalm 23. There are 150 Psalms in the, uh, in the book of Psalms, and we will obviously not do every one. And so we're going to look at Psalm chapter 51 today. Now let me ask you this, how do you respond when you make a mistake? How do you respond when you mess up? Some of us just rolls off our shoulders. We're all good. Some of us, it eats at us. Some of us, we get ashamed. We feel guilt. We're guilt-ridden. Some of us want to hide. Some of us get inspired to do more and to do better. There's a number of different ways we respond. Let me ask you this. How do you respond when you blow it in a relationship? And so maybe it's your spouse, your, your boyfriend, girlfriend, your neighbor, your, your, uh, your mom, your dad, your kids, and, and something happens and it just doesn't go well. How do you usually respond to that when it's your fault? I'm not talking about when you're like, oh yeah, they did that. But when it's your fault, how do you respond to that? Well, let me ask you this. How do you respond and feel when you realize you've committed a huge offense to God? Let me ask you this. Do we have any people that have sinned against God in the room? Okay. Well, Julie hasn't. It's okay. All right, girl. I know. All right. You didn't raise your hand. I'm just messing with you. I'm just messing with you. There you go. We can have that type of relationship. Every single one of us have sinned against God. Have any of us sinned big time against God? Of course, we all have. Some of us, maybe we're in that moment now where we feel like, you know what, last night, two nights ago on Thursday afternoon, or maybe it was on the way this morning, and you feel like you've offended a holy and righteous God. Let me ask you this. How do you usually respond, and how do you feel when that happens? Well, the encouraging thing is Psalm 51 is going to show us that there's hope for a sinner. And in fact, that's the title of our lesson here today. There's hope for a a sinner. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, thank you so much. Already we've been filled up. God has been encouraging to sing out, to pray to you, to uh, connect with one another. God, we're excited about the people getting baptized here today. But God, we're excited that you have something rich to teach us. And God, we know many of us have uh, been very familiar with the Psalm 51 and the passage, but God, help us again to hear the message that you have for us at this moment. God, the, uh, hear, hear, let us hear the message you want us to take as we go forward, and maybe we hit challenges in two weeks, a year, six months from now. God, that we can retain this and draw nearer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
want to give a little context here. And so this psalm is written by King David. And as we can see here, we get a little time frame of where King David was in, in the kind of spiritual church history timeline. And I want us to take it up here at the beginning, the little title that gives us a little description about Psalm 51. It helps us understand the context of David when he wrote this psalm. And it says, for the director of music. So this is going to be a song that they would sing out. Think about that for a second as we read the psalm. It says, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so again, to give a little context, 2 Samuel chapter 11, David, King David goes and he commits adultery with this woman named Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. David freaks out and he says, well, what, how can I hide this? And so he goes and he actually has her husband, Uriah, who's actually a soldier for David in the army, who's in battle, and he ensures that he will die in the conflict. And as he dies, then David's still hiding, but Nathan goes and confronts King David on this. And David responds, and he responds by even writing out this psalm. So do we understand the context of what we're about to read? All right, let's go ahead and let's get into it. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Transgressions is a, a big fancy word for sins. Wash away all my iniquity, another fancy word for sin. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me with wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will treat, teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Oh God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar will stop. There is hope for a sinner. And it's so much rich context from this passage. We see that if David can be forgiven for what he's done, and he's actually mentioned twice as being a man after God's own heart, 
So if he can be forgiven and still be considered a man after God's own heart, then there's hope for you and me when we fall short of the glory of God. The psalm highlights repentance, which means to change or change and turn from your sin. It highlights repentance and it highlights God's character. And it reveals the connection between repentance and God's character. The psalm shows us how we need reconciliation and we need transformation. We need to be justified and we need to be sanctified. But to experience these, we need repentance, we need God's power, we need God's love, we need God's grace, and we need God's mercy. So let's go ahead and let's break down this passage. Church, are you with me here? Amen. All right, let's go ahead. Psalm 51, it starts off, he says, have mercy on me. That's the way he starts. There's a plea for mercy. What humility to recognize and acknowledge his sin before God, but he's also writing this down, handing it to the choir director and says, here's what we'll sing about. Everybody knows the context of what he's sharing. How many of you have written a song based on your worst sin and then tried to put that on Spotify or iTunes so everybody can worship with you? No, these are the things that you might only have told one or two, three people that you might hold or you're trying to bury that or you're ashamed of that or you feel cleansed, but you're like, I don't want to go back to that. But David says the whole world's going to know. Why? Because there's hope for a sinner. As he pleads for mercy, he appeals to God's love and compassion and not his righteousness or his success in the past. He could have said, you know what, have mercy on me because you know what I've done for you in the past. Have mercy on me because you know I used to be at this level spiritually. He could have even appealed and said, you know much, how much I've sacrificed for you, so have some mercy on a brother. He could have even appealed to his circumstances and said, well, God, you understood the context. You know, I, I was just kind of put in that position, so can you have some mercy on me? But that's not what he does. He takes ownership. And he appeals to God for mercy. But here's the thing. He appeals to God's mercy because of God's character. He says, according to what? God, your unfailing love. According to your great compassion. You know, how we view God determines how we will respond to God. How you and I view God will determine how we respond to God. If we view God as this mean old cop who wants to just make sure he busts you, you can go into spiritual jail, then we're going to respond like that. We're going to have a fear that is unhealthy. And we feel that God is this old soft lovey and all he does is everything's okay, that we're not going to ever deal with our sin. But when we see God for who he is, how he is just and he's also loving, we can approach that just God with the expectation of compassion, mercy, and grace. You know, again, this gives us hope. We go on. He says, against you, you only have I sinned. Well, that's an interesting phrase there because is that technically true? No and yes. 
He's committed adultery. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against their families. He sinned against a whole lot of people. But David realizes that all sin is a sin against God first. Because it's violating God's will when we sin. So even if I do something to Karina and I sin against Karina, I have sinned against her. But first and foremost, I have sinned against my holy and righteous God. And so David recognizes this. He's not diminishing or minimizing his sin toward the people, but he's realizing, wow, wait a second, I have violated you. And so here's an interesting, this helps us with our theology here is that we can sometimes have some stinking thinking and we can think, you know what, I can worship God truthfully and I can treat people any old way. I'm with you, Lord, but I'm going to curse this person out next to me. But I'm right, I got faith, I go to church. But boy, oh boy, if you cross me, boy, you're going to catch these knuckles. I'm just playing, I don't do that, but you guys get what I'm saying. Right? And so we can think that, but that's wrong. That's backwards. Why? Because we dishonor God when we dishonor people who are made in his image. That's why, as you can see, when God has so many directions and commandments for how we should treat one another, because one, it helps us, it helps them, but it's also because they are made in his image just the way you are made in his image. So how we treat people reveals our relationship with God. And I love this. It says, justified when you judge. You know, God is justified in all of this and not him. You know, we tend to justify ourselves and accuse God. We tend to justify ourselves and accuse God. We'll be like, God, well, you didn't do this or you made this too hard for me. But yet we'll justify ourselves and minimize our choices and actions. Again, that's backwards. We need to make sure that God is just and that God is justified. And we are in need of mercy and of grace. Let's continue going in verse 5. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, let's, let's park here for just a quick second here because there's been some, some wrong theology that has come out from this passage here. Now, this is hyperbole. He's trying to make a statement to make a point. Again, this is poetry. And so, you know, as we have poetry, there's a license or freedom of license to, 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 to exaggerate or to have hyperbole and not take it literally. Now, he's not saying, hey, guys, guess what? I, I was in my mother's room. I was sending it up. He wouldn't know and nor would his mom. Now, my mom might disagree. She might say, boy, that boy was bad. He was sinful from the day he came out. And as a parent, I'm like, you know what? There is, man, these kids be sinful. You know what I'm saying? But that's not what he's saying. He's just trying to communicate, you know what? I know I have sin and I struggle with sin as long as I can remember. And my past mistakes reveal this sin that is in my life and can be in my heart. And he uses that word wisdom. And he's not talking about intelligence, but more a moral compass. He said, basically, God, you've always desired for me to be righteous, and you have given me a moral compass to do what's right. So there really is no excuse for the poor choices that you and I make. Again, God is justified. His God is righteous. Let's continue. He says, cleanse me, and I will be clean. You know, only God 
can make him clean. He can't make himself clean, nor can he do enough righteous works to balance out his sin. You know, many think that we can cleanse ourselves of our sin. If I just pray hard enough, then that means I will cleanse myself from my past. If I just do enough right things, then I can equal out what I did in the past. If I just, that we come up with all these things that, that we can balance it out. But the only way that you and I can be clean is by the mercy, grace, and power of the living God. Because it's him who can make us clean. And we can already see the connection with Jesus and the blood of Christ. And how only his righteousness makes you and I righteous before God. You know, many can think, let me get myself right before I turn to God. I was actually at the park last week talking to a a, a young man I've known for a while. And he's like, man, I need to go ahead and get myself together before I can start pursuing God. And I said, no. I said, they're not either or. I said, you need to come to God and God will help you get it right. You see, we don't go and try to fix ourselves and then go, God, I'm worthy now for you to work on me. No, we go to God and say, God, I need your mercy, grace, power, and love. And he says, let's work together and we'll work on this. Because it's God who cleans. Church, are you with me here? Verse 10, it says, create in me a pure heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me, restore to me the joy of salvation and grant me a willing spirit. He recognizes that God must initiate and he must be an integral part of the process of healing, of restoring, of strengthening and repairing. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to create in myself a pure heart. I'm going to pray enough. I'm going to fast enough. And that's going to purify me. He says, God, I need you to create in me a pure heart. And that word create is the same Hebrew word that was mentioned in Genesis when it talked about God created the heavens and the earth, how he created the the animals and how he created mankind. And so there's, again, there's an idea here, a connection that God creates, not only in the physical, but he creates even in the soul within us. And I love the fact that he deals with the internal and not the external behavior. You see, God sees and works on the inside. You know, how much more of a fulfilling and refreshing faith if we can focus on the same things? If we can also focus in on the inside, I wonder what kind of refreshment and fulfilling faith you and I could have. He says here in verse 11, do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. You know, if God's presence is removed, then we have no chance at this pure heart. We have no chance at a steadfast spirit. We have no chance at joy or willing spirit. We desperately need God to be an integral part of the process. Church, are you with me here? So it's so important that we remember that we engage our daily relationship with God. And for those of us on this side, again, this is the Old Testament. On the new t- and after the new covenant has been established with Jesus dying and resurrecting, all of those who have repented and get baptized, we now have the indwelling of God's spirit. So we don't need to actually pray the same prayer. Of, don't, please don't have your spirit depart from me because God's spirit's within us. He's not going anywhere. But it does say we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And it does call us to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So what we can do is we can walk a different direction. 
which creates distance. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm trying to do something in your life, but you won't let me. And therefore, we're actually cutting our own legs from underneath us. And we're missing out on what God wants to provide and how he wants to work in and through our lives. Church, are you getting what we're saying here? Let's continue going here. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. You know, his desire is not to teach people a thing or two. Boy, I'm done. Now let me tell you. No, he's not doing this with, with, with an arrogance about him. Instead, he wants to teach people God's character and how to be reconciled and transformed by God through repentance. Then others will return to God and have a true relationship. And he goes on and he talks about, my, son, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. My mouth will declare your praise. You know, when the mercy of God, when you come in contact with the mercy and the grace of God and you really realize and understand what just took place and what you're experiencing, what you're living, it changes things. It moves. It impacts it draws you to God and to new things to desire rather than what you turned away from. And so he says here, man, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Those who have been saved when it's time to sing, we sing all out with our heart. We might not sing very well, but we sing with our hearts. Amen. Those who stand next to me like, yeah, we wish you would sing a little less. <laughs> Except for Nick. He might be tone deaf or something. I'm not sure. But it was so cool, you know, yesterday, a number of us, you know, we've been going and we've been sharing our faith in the neighborhood of Placentia. And, uh, you know, each week we're getting bigger because we're moving over to Placentia. And it's been so encouraging and so exciting, and, and, and you know, to go out and, and share our faith and invite people. But, you know, all that's really going on is, man, these people have been changed by the mercy of God. And we're going, we just want you to also know about the mercy of God. We want you to experience the mercy of God. We want you to experience life in Christ. It was so cool. Corey, uh, who Corey is one of the people that's going to get baptized today. Look at he's fired up. He's fired up. Corey is fired up. So Corey goes with us yesterday. So we're walking. I'm sorry, I'm digressing from my notes here. I need to hurry up and get done. But here we go. So. We're walking, and me and Corey are going door to door, and I'm like, all right, Corey, you know, when it's your turn, you know, I'll, I'll start us off, and then you can go. He's like, okay. So then we get to one house. I'm like, all right, Corey, here you go. He goes, all right, here we go. He goes up there, and Corey's like, man, the man. He's like going and sharing, and the lady's got a kid in the background, but she's all engaged, and she, I think she's going to come with her kids. And Corey's like, yep, all right, cool. I said, all right, man, let's go. He goes, I'll take the next one. I was like, well, go ahead. You got it then, brother. I, you know what I'm saying? I'm in the back trying to, can I say something, Corey? And Corey's just going, you know? And so we're going to the house, and now we're walking back, and Corey sees another person walking down the street, and he runs over there. He leaves the group. He's like, hey, can I tell you about something? And he starts sharing his why, because he's starting to experience the mercy of God, and he can't help but tell other people about it. Can't help but sing and be praising God and praising God to others. Let's go ahead. Verse 16. You did not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Again, the context is they would have offerings and sacrifices to God to help them understand spiritually the need for reconciliation with God. But here's some good theology here that helps us out. You know, religious rituals don't satisfy or reconcile us with God. 
Religious rituals don't satisfy or reconcile us with God. Humility and brokenness does. To have a renewed heart created in us, we must first have a broken heart within us. A heart that is humble, a heart that is contrite before the magnitude of our sin and even the greater generosity of God's love. But this requires honesty with ourselves about what we've done and who we can be when we're not close to God. For us to have a broken and contrite heart, we have to be honest. Some of us, we struggle with being honest with who we are when we're not right with God or who we can be when we're not close to God or we struggle with trying to understand the magnitude of our sin. So therefore, we can't reach that place of a broken and contrite spirit. So our religious rituals really do nothing for us. And we wonder why, but I did this. It's because we didn't have a broken and contrite heart. And it requires honesty, which I believe produces humility and leads to contrite hearts. You know, he says a broken and contrite heart. That's the Hebrew word. It means to be crushed. And so in this context, broken by a consciousness of guilt. And, you know, Jesus highlights that type of heart in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs will be the kingdom of God. And so even Jesus highlights we have to be poor in spirit, meaning we have to be humbled before the living God. He says, you won't reject this type of heart and humility. There's hope for a sinner. But it also implies that God will or can reject hollow religious rituals. Let's continue. Verse 18 and 19. He said, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. Wait a second. I thought, what's going on here, right? Well, again, when we have a broken and contrite heart, the religious things that we might do and offer up to God are now more than pleasing to God and acceptable to God because we have the right heart and motivation in what we're doing. And it says the righteous. Well, let's let's understand this. The righteous are not those without sin. Proverbs 24, 16, you can write that down, says, For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. So what made him righteous? Well, it's the fact that he repented and persevered. Righteousness doesn't mean to be without sin. Many times it means to remain faithful and repent when we see sin in our lives. Therefore, making us righteous. Again, the righteous are those with broken and contrite hearts. May we be those people with broken and contrite hearts. Imagine the hope, the blessings, and the transformation that can take place in our church, in our communities, if we were to have broken and contrite hearts. And we were to see the hope that we have in Christ. You know, personally, I'm inspired by the example of godly sorrow. But I'm even more inspired and more in awe of God's power and character that's revealed. That the repentance is awesome, but it's all because of God's character to not only promote, but to accept any type of repentance. And that we can even appeal to a God who is righteous and just and perfect and flawless. We can appeal to him because of his character of love, grace, and mercy. Again, David's a man after God's own heart, but yet he's got a, he's got a sin list that probably many of us can't, can't match. But yet it's because of God's character that he had hope as a sinner. And there's hope for the sinners in this room. There's hope for the sinners in our classrooms and in our neighborhoods. 
There's hope for the sinners who are not right with God. There's hope that they can or you can be reconciled and you can be transformed. And there's hope for those of us who are sinners by grace or sinners who have been saved by grace. And yes, we are saved, and I don't think we should have our identification as sinners, but we do realize that we do sin and we are in need of grace. But we can realize that there's hope for us. So even when we mess up and we don't try and we step into it and we go deep down into some sin that we had no business being a part of, even if you're in that place or you reach that place one day, there's hope for you. God's character and repentance, when they connect will lift you up to God's glory. Right now, Karina's going to come up and share some thoughts and also lead us in our time of communion. Thank you, church. One this week, uh, I was really moved by this psalm um, in that what it reveals about God's character and his nature, um, just like Marcel was talking about. Mercy is in God's character and nature. It's who he is. And as I read this, I, I think about how God is the hero of this psalm, of the Bible always, but he's the hero. He is David's hero. Um, David's forgiveness, as is ours, is solely reliant on God's mercy. Um, it's God's uh, it's God who offers us his undeserved favor. In verse 16, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. And actually, there was no sacrifice or offering that David could bring that was available to him because the Old Testament didn't prescribe a, a, an atoning sacrifice for murder or adultery. And so David literally had nothing he could bring other than um, a broken and contrite heart. Um, all he could do was entrust himself uh, to God's mercy. And I, I think the same is true for me. Like there's nothing I can do or say or um, provide to God that would merit his favor or that would uh, um, give me the opportunity to have a relationship with him. Uh, and it's the power of, um, it's his power um, that allows us to be forgiven. And it's only him that can wash away all my sin. Um, so God not only has the power and the authority uh, to offer mercy, but he also desires to grant us mercy. He also desires to give me um, his favor. And in verse 1, David says, Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. And it's, um, God is merciful because, again, it's in his character to be loving and compassionate. And there's a parallel between this psalm um, that some drawn and uh, Luke 15, uh, when Jesus teaches the parable of the lost son. And the parable of the lost son is about a son who asks for his father's in inheritance, leaves his family, squanders uh, the, his father's wealth, and then comes back with, with nothing but guilt and regret. And so in Psalm 51 verse 4, David says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Similarly, in Luke 15, 21, the son returns and says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Uh, Jesus does tell us, though, that 
um, while he was still a long way off, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Jesus gives us a visual of God's mercy according to his unfailing love, according to his compassion. It's this visual of a father running and weeping and excited to see his lost son. Um, Later, Jesus is willing to show us himself the extent of God's love and mercy and his compassion by dying on the cross for us. And um, we see this same mercy offered to us through Jesus. Um, Because of his love, because of his compassion, God is willing to initiate mercy through Jesus on the cross. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, it reads, But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so as we take communion today, uh, we can be reminded of God's mercy for us uh, through the cross and resurrection. It's his unfailing love and his great compassion that meant Jesus was willing to go to the cross for us, that he was willing to be that, that sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could atone for our sin. And his power, God's power, is the one that raises Jesus from the dead. He's able to wash away our sin and is um, and allows us to be raised with Christ. And so right now we'll pray for our communion. Heavenly Father, I stand in awe and gratitude of your mercy, of your love, your compassion, of everything that you do time after time to show us the extent of your love, that you would be willing to send your son, that you would be willing to... um, raise Jesus from the dead so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a relationship with you. I thank you, God, that we not only have a chance to um, have your mercy, but that you um, raise us with Christ, that you allow us to be seated next to him. I I just can't even fathom. And so uh, I thank you. I thank you that you remind us over and over again uh, throughout the scriptures, through the Psalms, through the Old Testament, the New Testament, through Jesus, that you're constantly reminding us of your great mercy and your great love. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this time that we get to share together to remember um, and to reflect on the cross and to be reminded of what you do in our lives. Thank you so much for the forgiveness that you offer us, for the opportunities that we have to have a relationship with you and to have hope uh, for uh, something greater than um, our our mistakes. Uh, We love you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.